Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. We are uh, welcoming you back to the program today, and we are continuing our study on the book of Romans. And uh, we are in chapter 4. Last week we did one segment on Romans chapter 4. As we have transitioned from the diagnosis section of Romans, Romans 1, 2, and 3 is the diagnosis of the problem of the entire human family, both Jew and Gentile. And the end of that story is, there is none righteous, no, not even one. And it brings us to the end of ourselves, whether Jew, Gentile, insider, or outsider. It brings us to uh, the complicity of our own uh, fallen problems to the fact that we need a Savior. Uh, as we introduced this message, we, we showed you several things, that uh, the gospel is both objective and subjective. It is, in other words, let me give you biblical terms, it is the way of grace, and it is the walk of faith. It's not either or, it is both of them held in a careful tension. One without the other will lead you out into error. Grace without faith will lead you into lawlessness. In other words, if you preach grace, and that is all God, what will happen is you'll find yourself on the, uh, on, on the side where there's no response at all that is required or no change that takes place in one's life or any of that. But when you understand that grace is the unmerited, unfavor, uh, unmerited, unearned favor of God, and you realize that what grace does is that He declares us to be righteous on the basis of faith, and when our faith lays hold of what grace has accomplished, then there's a response that begins to produce a change in our life. And it doesn't make works for righteousness, but works of righteousness. Because what you really believe, you will act on. And if we preach faith without grace, it leaves us in a whole bunch of formulas. It turns faith into works. And we will probably get into that some as we talk about the life of Abraham a little bit further in this chapter, because this chapter is really about the life of Abraham and how God had justified Abraham by faith before he was even circumcised. And so he lived in the risky embrace of faith. And we're going to go back over some of that in just a little bit. But uh, I'm just going to read down through Romans 4 here a little bit, and then we'll get into the latter part, because we only got through several, uh, the first few verses. But I'm just going to try to read some of these, because it makes it pretty clear. And as we get into the latter part, we'll talk about the life of Abraham a little bit more. It says, how do we fit what we know of Abraham, our first father, in the faith into this new way of looking at things, this new covenant? Abraham, if Abraham, by what he did for God, got God to approve him, he could certainly have taken credit for it. But the story we're given is a God story and not an Abraham story. This is not a Lynn story. It's not a Bob story. It's not a, 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 a Mary story. It is a God story. We've got to get our focus back on Him. We put too much focus on us. We're preaching the wrong man, ladies and gentlemen. If you're preaching me and you're preaching my behavior and you're preaching Adam, you're preaching the old man. You're preaching the wrong man. You're preaching the wrong covenant. The old covenant was given to modify the behavior of an old man, and the new covenant is given to mature and, 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 mature and feed the new man to bring him to full maturity. And he goes on to say, uh, uh, what we read in the Scripture is Abraham entered into what God was doing for him. And that was the turning point. 
He trusted God to set him right instead of trying to be right on his own. That describes most of Christianity today, trying to be right on your own rather than trusting God to make you righteous. Let me just say this to you. To be righteous does not mean you glow in the dark or you don't have any flaws. It simply means God has set you up right and put you in right relationship with Him as pure gift. And He does that before your behavior gets right. He simply says, I'm going to remove all the obstacles, and I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to make you right with me as pure gift. And once again, righteousness does not mean you don't have anything in your life that God's dealing with. It simply means that there's nothing between Him and I any longer that separates our relationship. It says, it goes on to say, uh, it goes on to say, if you're a hard worker and do a good job, you deserve your pay. We don't call your wages a gift. But if you see that the job is too big for you, that is something only God can do, and you trust Him to do it, you could never do it for yourself no matter how hard and long you work. Well, that trusting in Him to do it is what gets you set right with God, by God, as sheer gift. Now, there's no other way to explain this other than it is a gift. What part of gift don't we understand? We don't pay for it. We don't earn it. It's almost like somebody trying to give you some money or a gift, and you're like, well, you know, let me give, let me give you something back, or you feel like you're obligated to give him back. Listen, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a sheer gift to make you right with him simply because you trust his action in you, and you realize that what God wants to do in me it can only be done by him. And he goes on to say, David confirms this way of looking at it, saying that the one who trusts God to do the putting everything right without insisting on having a say in it is one fortunate man. Fortunate are those whose crimes are carted off, whose sins are wiped out from the slate. Fortunate the person against whom the Lord does not keep score. Man, that's good news. Do you think for a minute that this blessing is only pronounced over those of us who keep our religious ways and are circumcised? Well, this is a preach. Do you think it only comes on people that, 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 that got it all together, like we think we got it all together? He goes on to say, do you think that, that, that keep our religious ways and our circumstances? Or do you think it is possible that the blessing could be given to those who never even heard of our ways, who were never brought up in the disciplines of God? We all agree, don't we, that it was by the embrace what God did for him that Abraham was declared fit or righteous before God. Now think, now think. What was, now think, was that declaration made before or after he was marked by the covenant's right of circumcision? That's right, before he was marked. That means that he underwent circumcision as evidence and confirmation of what God had done long before to bring him into this acceptable standing with himself as an act of God he had embraced with his whole life. In other words, once you really receive this gift and you start trusting God, the response of faith was Abraham had the token of circumcision, and it started to manifest in his life what he was believing that God had given to him. In other words, when you become... I think sometimes, uh, you, you know, let me just say it like this. I, I grew up in, in well-meaning. Uh, you know, I, I try not to be critical of people because people are doing what they believe they're supposed to. The problem is we're preaching from the wrong covenant. But we used to, people would ask us, well, what do y'all believe up at that church? Well, we don't, we'd start out and say, well, we don't believe you ought to do this, and we don't believe you ought to do that, we don't believe you ought to do that. And what they would do is preach against stuff until they would literally shut up faith. I thought I was saved many a service 
And I'd come in and them rascals would come up with a new sin and they had that preach so, my salvation was so volatile that, man, I could die and go to hell before the night was over. And I thought, well, I thought I was saved before I got here, but man, I don't even believe I'm saved anymore. And while I'm standing there telling somebody one time, they said, what do you believe? I said, we don't believe this. We don't believe that. We don't believe you should do this. We don't believe you should do that. I've realized as I sat there, I thought, you know what? I've sat in church my whole life and became an unbeliever because they never taught me anything to believe. Galatians 3 said the law shuts of faith because the law is not of faith. The more you preach something that disqualifies people, that's why we've run our young people off. That's why rehabs are full of people that have already been to our churches because we've disqualified them to the place where we've made, we have made unbelievers out of them. But when you shift to this new way of thinking and start to realize this is not simply about uh, you know, this is simply not about performance, but it's about entering into what God is doing for you and trusting Him that while He's doing that work, you're still in right relationship. You've been made righteous with Him before there's ever any manifestation in your life. You know that, man, I can remember the moment you got saved, they want you to cut your hair, stop doing this, don't do the other thing. Let me tell you something, man. And I, I, there was some stuff that immediately, man, I lost the appetite for, I lost the desire for, and God literally you know, brought deliverance in my life. And I'm, I'm not talking about God won't bring deliverance in your life, because there's some things you're probably crying out for God to bring deliverance in. But it's like being in a rehab setting. See, if you could have done it without a higher power, you wouldn't have needed to turn to somebody who could do for you what you could not do for yourself. So deliverance is coming as we begin to embrace this faith walk. And this, this uh, then all of a sudden there's a manifestation that begins to take place in our life. There's more manifestation of the life and nature of God in my life that is effortless than there's ever been before uh, when I was under religion. And so when, when under religion, you would fake it. You'd act like you love people. You'd act like you were patient with them. You'd act like you were kind. And you're putting on your precious Jesus face, so to speak, which is just a mask. It's just an act. But when you begin to understand what he's saying, all of a sudden you really do love people. And you really do love your neighbor because you're not sitting in the judgment seat trying to be a Pharisee and condemn every action that they have. And see, what we have to do is we have to understand this even sometimes with our children because our children, you know, show up and our grandchildren or whatever, and they come to our house for, you know, a holiday. And the first thing we want to do is lay down the law and preach at them and tell them all the stuff that's wrong with them until they don't come back till next year. Can I just tell you that if you would just point them to Jesus and tell them, listen, the same God who saved you without works is the same God who is delivering you now. And so that's the, brace, that's the risky embrace of faith that we walk into. It goes on to say, and it means further that Abraham is the father of all people, all people who embrace what God, God does for them while they are still in the outs with God, as yet un, identified as gods in an uncircumcised condition. It is precisely these people in this condition who are called set right by God with God. Abraham all, is also... Abraham is also, of course, father of those who have undergone the religious rite of circumcision, not just because of the ritual, but because they are, were willing to live in the risky, in the risky faith embrace of God's action for them, the way Abraham lived long before he was marked by circumcision. Now, let me tell you, he's saying that he has even declared righteous those who are outsiders. Now, they don't know they've been declared right. They don't know that God's reconciled them by the death of their son. 
See, in, in Romans 1, 2, and 3, he tells them that for this cause the wrath of God comes upon the children of the disobedience. But if you go uh, further, just don't take that one verse out of its context. This is a whole letter. You've got to go to Romans 5 where it says, we've been saved from wrath through Him, and we're saved by wrath through Him by believing into God's action for us instead of what we do for ourselves. Now, uh, let me just read <coughs> a note here, and we're going down in here. It says, uh, you, you are declared righteous before there's any manifestation in your life. It is your faith that produces the manifestation. In other words, if you really believe you're righteous, you will begin to act like you're righteous. Faith ultimately produces works of righteousness and not works for righteousness. Righteousness does not mean you glow in the dark. It simply means you have put, been put in right standing with God and now qualified for relationship with Him. The gospel is not about a law you have to keep. The good news is it's about receiving a life that will keep you. That's powerful. Now let me read the next verse. It said, the famous promise God gave to Abraham that he and his children would possess the earth was not given because of something Abraham did or would do. It was based on God's decision to put everything together for him. And Abraham then entered in what he believed. Now that's powerful in itself because he's promising the seed of Abraham would inherit the earth, it would inherit the blessing that the children of Israel. He said, the famous promise God gave Abraham that he and his children would possess the earth. Wait a minute, wait a minute. The earth? Yeah, the earth. Not just heaven. The earth. The heaven of heavens, the scripture said, was made for God, but the earth was given to the sons of men. God put his first man, Adam, here to have dominion. I believe God was raising a family of believers in the earth who would possess, hallelujah, the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. That's an inheritance clause, and that's a promise made to the seed of Abraham, and the seed of Abraham was Christ, and because we are in Christ, we are part of that same covenant. He says that in Hebrews chapter 1 and 2, that the world to come was not put in subjection to angels, but it was put in subjection to a son. And if we're sons, then we're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ Jesus. What, what's the contrast? Well, he didn't, he, he didn't make the promise that it would be given to angels, because the first covenant was delivered by the hands of angels through a mediator. But the new covenant was given to a son, and through that son, God promised that he would inherit the Gentiles. See, what we don't realize is we talk about our inheritance, and we get it because of Jesus. But we forget he has an inheritance. He says in Psalm 2, Ask of me, and I will give you the heathen for your inheritance, the uttermost part of the earth for your possession. That's powerful, man. That the heir of that he would become heir of the world was given to Abraham, man, that they would possess the earth not because of something he did or would do. It was based on God's decision to put everything together for him, which Abraham then entered into when he believed. If those who get what God gives them only get it by doing everything they are told to do and filling out all the right forms properly signed, that, uh, that eliminate, he said that eliminates personal trust completely and turns the promise into an ironclad contract. That's not a holy promise. That's a business deal. 
A contract drawn up by a hard-nosed lawyer with plenty of fine print only makes sure that you will never be able to collect. I'm reading from the Message Bible. But if there is no contract in the first place, simply a promise, and God's promise at that, man, this is good, you can't break it, he goes on to say. See, it is God. It's a one-sided deal. God makes the promise. We simply believe what He said He was going to do. Hallelujah. And get in step with that. That is powerful. And God's promise at that. It's not an ironclad contract. It's not drawn up so that it, it makes sure you never get it. See, that's what the law did. The law was a, a, a contract with fine print, and the more they went, the more print there was, and it was, it was a business deal. But this promise that God makes by faith has nothing to do with an ironclad legal contract. It has to do with trusting the promise of God and God's promise at that, and He says you can't break it. This is why the fulfillment of God's promise depends entirely on trusting God and His way, and then simply embracing Him and what He does. God's promise arise, arrives as pure gift. That's the only way everyone can be sure to get in on it. Those who keep the religious traditions and those who have never heard of them. For Abraham is the father of us all. He is not our only our racial father. That's reading the story backwards. He is our faith father. Well, uh, we call Abraham father not because he got God's attention by living like a saint, but because God made something out of Abraham when he was a nobody. I love that man. God picks the underdogs and chooses people when they're a nobody to make them a somebody. And God simply chose him and said, you know, when he was, he went, when he was a nobody. That's powerful to me. Uh, let me see where I lost my place there. Let me see here. We call Abraham father, not because this verse 17, not because he got God's attention by living like a saint, but because God made something out of Abraham when he was a nobody. Isn't that what we've already read in Scripture? God saying to Abraham, I set you up as a father of many peoples. Abraham was first named father and then became a father because he dared to trust God to do what only God could do, and that is to raise the dead to life. Now that's powerful because here's the thing he tells us later on in the Scripture. He said, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you have the faith to believe God can raise the dead? Ah, hallelujah. He said that God could raise the dead to life with a word, make something out of nothing. When everything was hopeless, Abraham believed anyway. Deciding to live not on the basis of what he saw he couldn't do, but on the basis of what God said he would do. And so he was made father of a multitude of people. God himself said to him, you are going to have a big family, Abraham. Abraham didn't focus on his impotence and say it's help hopeless. This hundred-year-old body could never father a child. Nor did he survey Sarah's decades of infertility and give up. He didn't tiptoe around God's promise asking cautiously skeptical questions. He plunged into the promise and came up strong, ready for God, sure that God would make good on what he had said. That's why it is said Abraham was declared fit before God by trusting God to set him right. But it's not just Abraham, it's us also 
The same thing gets said about us when we embrace and believe the one who brought Jesus to life when the conditions were equally hopeless. The sacrifice Jesus made us fit for God set us right with God. Now let me just stop here a moment and go back and we're going we're gonna to do probably at least one more segment on the life of Abraham. But what I want you to see is uh, in this particular, uh, in the last few minutes that we have here, is that what causes your faith to begin to shift in another direction is when it says that when everything was hopeless, verse 18, Abraham believed anyway, deciding to live on the basis of what he saw he couldn't do, living, deciding to live not on the basis of what he saw he couldn't do, but on what God said He would do. So he was made father of a multitude of people. God Himself said to him, you're going to be, have a big family. But here's what I want you to see. Abraham didn't focus on his own impotence say, and say it's hopeless. When you start to look at your own abilities, listen, this man was 99 years old and his wife was 86 when she finally conceived the promise. Now let me tell you something, it would be difficult to not look at your own physical self and say, man, God made a promise a long time ago, but I don't see anything happen. I think sometimes we're not very patient. Boy, this really speaks to me as well. We think God, you know, ought to snap His magic wand every time we want something, and man, boy, you know, we just ought to just, God ought to snap to it like He's a celestial Santa Claus. Or we don't see change in our lives fast enough as maybe what God promised us would take place and what would happen. And what we start doing is we start putting our focus on what we see happening in my own life. Even the faith it takes for healing, sometimes we focus on ourselves. And this, I have to struggle with this myself because I, as I look at my my age getting up there, you start to accept things like, well, you're supposed to have more aches and pains. Well, this is, you know, you know, you just kind of relinquish. But you know, there's a lot of promises God made. Or you start thinking, I, I start thinking of the prophetic word that God gave us even concerning television years ago, and the promises God made to me when I was 16 or 17 that are just coming to pass now. And I'll be 65 in October of this year. And I start looking back at that. When I consider my inability. When, when we went on television, the Lord spoke to me to go on television, said, uh, I said and, and the Lord said to me, I, uh, you know, I want you to go on television. I said, Lord, I can't afford that because it's, it's, it's expensive. And when I said, Lord, I can't afford that, He said, who told you that? And I'm thinking, my bank account did. But we just simply made one step at a time by faith. We, we, when I look back at where we started out, we bought a couple of, of, of cameras. We put up a little fake set in our our church, and we started filming. That's 12 years ago. We've been on national television now for 12 years ago. People see us today, and they think, well, it's an overnight success. It's not, and I, I'm glad it's not, because success too soon can destroy you. Because your greatest test is not in your failure. It's in your success. But when you start to take the step of faith, and you simply take one step at a time, and you stop considering your own ability to do it. See, when you start to get out on the limb of faith, so to speak, it's because you made a step to do what you cannot do for yourself. And now that, that, that's all natural stuff. 
that we look at. But every one of us in our own life, as far as looking for God to really do the work in us, when we start to look at the impotence of our own flesh and the inability we have to produce this, we get our focus on the wrong thing. And when we get our focus on the wrong thing, and th then our faith begins to be diminished because we were not looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews, he's warning those Hebrews who are tempted to go back in Hebrews 6 where he says, therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine about Christ, let's go into perfection, not laying again the foundation of, foundation of faith towards God and of dead works and laying on of hands and the baptisms. Really he's talking there again, not about laying on of hands in a church service or water baptism there. Now I do believe in that, but that's not the text for it. That text he's talking to Hebrews who are going back to laying their hands on the head of Paschal lambs to confess their sin and going back to the mikvahs and the divers' washings to try to make themselves clean. He said, let's turn away from that and go on to perfection. The more perfect thing was the new covenant. And so he tells them, then if you sin willfully, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. You do despite to the Spirit of grace. He's not talking about new sin last night. He's talking about you go back to an old covenant paradigm to try to do for yourself what only God can do for you. He said, there's not another lamb coming. You do despite to the Spirit of grace. And he starts to point them to their heroes of faith. And he's starting to tell them, listen, look look, look at over here. At, uh, by faith, Moses kept the Passover. By faith, Abraham believed God. By faith, Sarah received strength to conceive. By faith, they built an ark. By faith. In other words, something that they did by faith in the visible realm, every one of those in Hebrews 11. Go, go study my Hebrews 11 series, because every one of those men built something in the visible realm that was a picture of what uh, Christ would do for them. He is our ark of safety. He was our lamb of Passover. He was the child that Abraham promised us. So he tells them, listen, you need to look to this. Look unto Jesus, the author. Look away from all of this stuff that's distracting you to go back to law and to legalism and look unto Jesus, who's the author and finisher of our faith. Because when you start to consider your own failures, your own weaknesses, and your own abilities, you will become discouraged very rapidly, and you will enter into what I call a crisis of faith, and that's where many people turn and walk away from God. I did in my teenage years because I thought, God, I have utterly and miserably failed. I'm not keeping the rules, and I'm lost as a goose, and then I was being re that was being reaffirmed by the God. The message I was being taught was, well, if you mess up one time, you're done, you're doomed. God's mad with you, you know, looking for the judgment of God to hit you, looking for fiery indignation all the time. And let me tell you something, man, that is a miserable way to live. And when you put your focus on you, you're preaching the wrong man and faith will diminish. But when you put your trust and faith in the one who can raise the dead, something absolutely impossible, then you're entering the risky embrace of faith. And you, it is the way of grace and the walk of faith. Well, we're out of time again, and I trust that you've enjoyed this segment. We're going to come back and talk a little bit about the life of Abraham and Sarah in the next one and make this powerful comparison. But if you would like to sow a seed into this ministry, please do it by going to the website there that's on the screen or scan the QR code. It'll take you directly to a place where you can give via credit card or debit card through our PayPal, uh, uh, our PayPal app there. And you can also call the number on the screen or send a check or money order to the address that will come on the screen. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. 
I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.